This is the Idea Time Show, Idea Time Show with Dr. Joe North, helping facilitators expand their creativity, confidence, and impact through the power of innovation in action. Gain confidence as a facilitator, confidence with the technology, and confidence with your content and event design. Tune in every week for practical tips, strategies and interviews that will accelerate your personal and business success. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jo North. Hello there, welcome to the Idea Time podcast. I am so excited about this episode. It really is a special one because I am joined by Dr. Tim Whitworth and Paul Knight from National Nuclear Laboratories in the UK. Their roles are all about bringing disruptive innovation for the benefit of the nuclear sector and commercialising that, making it real, making it happen. NNL, as you'll hear, delivers world-leading nuclear expertise and innovative solutions. It's all about clean energy, a safe world, leading-edge science and technology at the foundation of everything that they do. So it's going to be a really fascinating podcast and let's get started. So a big welcome to you, Tim, and to Paul. Could you kick us off by saying what it is that you do? What is NNL, National Nuclear Laboratories? And let's get stuck into some great content. I suppose we could start with a little bit about NNL. We are the National Nuclear Laboratory, so we're the National Lab for the Nuclear Sector. We're government-owned, but we operate on a full commercial basis. So we have to win work and compete for work and don't receive any direct funding from government. So in that respect, we're a bit like Channel 4. We deal with a whole fuel cycle, apart from taking it out of the ground. So we do with fuel production through to supporting the operation of reactors, then down to decommissioning and eventually looking at consolidating waste before it's put into a long-term storage facility. In the innovation team, we operate across the whole business We have three main ways that we interact with our technical colleagues. We have bottom-up ideas, so that's technology push in some respects, where we have an open call for any of our colleagues who've got an idea where they think there's an opportunity to develop a technology or provide a new service that can support our customers and support our operations and develop our business. So they can apply to us and we can award some funding. We have different stages of funding so they can get easy access to a small pot of money just to kind of develop the idea, kick the tyres on an idea, to then more develop grants where we're looking at developing prototypes to then go on to commercialisation activities. We also do challenge-led innovation, so top-down, where if we see there's a problem or a, a particular challenge by one of our customers or even within our own business, We'll write out a challenge statement and we'll promote that out to the wider community of our colleagues and ask them to come up with ideas and potential solutions to solve that challenge. We're also very keen on collaboration. So we do a lot of kind of collaborating with either universities, SMEs, other companies. I think it was Bill Joy that said not all of the smartest people work for us. Most of them work for somebody else. There is a tremendous amount of knowledge outside of NNL and we must and have to tap into that knowledge to support our ongoing aspirations to deliver new technologies and innovations. So it's a broad remit, it covers the entire company and we, like I say, will work with different parties or stakeholders to support the delivery of the the portfolio as a whole. Fantastic, thank you. And it's through those challenges that that we met and started working together as well. And I've really loved all the work we've done. It's been terrific. Paul, talk to us about sort of your role in the innovation process and how did you come to be doing what you do at NNL? 
So I started in nuclear industry back in about 1996, I think. I started as a chemist down at Dungeness Nuclear Power Station, which is one of the Magnox fleet of reactors. Did all sorts of jobs there, which I really enjoyed. And then when they announced the closure of the Magnox stations, wasn't an immediate closure, but they sort of, you know, talked about starting to decommission them. I looked around to look for other opportunities and a job came up at what was then BNFL R&T, which is what NNL is now, working in sort of technology in the field of aerial discharge. So I came up to Sellafield, moved up to Sellafield, it was about a 400 mile trip up, <laughs> it was quite a move, and started working in the, the aerial discharge team for about five years, I think. And then I did a bit of work in liquid effluent technology. And then I moved into project management, which I did for about four or five years. And then the innovation sort of side of things at NLL started to become quite important. And I joined the sort of technology commercialization team there, primarily looking, as Tim mentioned earlier, ideas. We were quite focused at that point on ideas that had come from within the organization. I was involved in the assessment of those ideas looking to see whether it was sort of worth pursuing them further. Second, there was customer engagement. And if we thought they were worth pursuing, then we could award funding. And I was involved in developing business cases on some of those ideas. I'd say probably in the last three or four years, things have started to open up a bit. And we're now, as Tim mentioned, much more open to collaboration. And Tim, you head up all the innovation team. So how did you get into doing what you're doing and how did you get into innovation also, what does innovation mean to you? Probably not usual for someone who works in the nuclear industry. I've got a life sciences background. So I did my PhD at Manchester and was part of a, an industry-funded PhD and was part of a spin-out company. And that's where I really got to see the translation of science in the lab into real-world effects. We were developing an early-stage genotoxicology screening assay. And it was through that I understood and stopped being exposed to patents and intellectual property and how you could commercialise the research that was done in the lab through things like a spin-out or licence agreements and start to make a real tangible difference and introduce new technologies. So that was my kind of first exposure to sort of innovative science and the commercialisation of innovative science. Following that, I did a postgraduate diploma in intellectual property law, and then I moved into doing technology commercialisation, intellectual property at Russell Group Universities. So I was tasked with leading a number of projects across the whole gamut of departments at the university, looking at trying to take those really early stage technologies to either garner venture capitalist investment or do licenses to industry who could then put those ideas and science into practice. So we'd form spin out companies and we do license deals and then we do a lot of sort of tech transfer and knowledge exchange from academia into industry. So I did that for a number of years and then I saw the advert for the National Nuclear Laboratory. I thought that's really interesting. What do they do in nuclear? And I looked at all of the specifications that they had and I was like, I can do all of that. Don't know much about nuclear yet, but I'm sure I can learn. So I gave them a ring and came along. They said, yes, we'd like to interview you. And they said, yeah, you've got the skills we'd like. So I joined NNL coming up to nearly six years now and love it. Absolutely love nuclear. It's ripe for innovation. It's ripe for challenges, lots of technology, interesting ideas, interesting work that we do really is at the cutting edge of science. And for me, innovation is about trying to make a difference. It's about trying to improve what's already going on or think of something completely new to kind of disrupt what's happening. So, you know, real sort of disruptive innovation. And it's trying to bring those in within the confines of a highly regulated industry that we operate in. 
it's a blend of all of those things, which is why why I really enjoy working for NNL. It's absolutely fascinating and it's a brilliant, as you say, a brilliant industry for innovation. There's lots going on. Paul, what does a day in the life of a nuclear innovator look like? <laughs> uh, I guess there's no typical day in the life of a nuclear innovator. Typically, a day for me might involve uh, reviewing some of our applications that people within the business have um, submitted. So we've got a system called the Innovation Lab where employees can actually submit ideas. We review those ideas and if we think they're eligible and worth pursuing, then we can award funding. So some of the time is spent looking at those ideas, contacting the people that have come up with the idea, helping guide them through the process for receiving that money. And actually we've refined that in the last few years to make it much simpler, which has benefited really in getting better engagement with people in the company. Sometimes we would need to check whether the appetite is there for the technology. So that could involve calling potential customers, discussing ideas with them, seeing whether there's actually an appetite to take it forward. Obviously, we only want to invest funding in really ideas that we know have got an end user pool. We also pull together what we call top-down challenges as well. So these are challenges that we put out to the business. Do you get many of those? Because I know a lot of the organisations that I speak to and work with say that they don't really get very many ideas or not as many as they'd like coming from the employee team. So how do you go about that? How do you make that successful? How does it work for you? I think we have some natural innovators within NNL. Those people submit ideas quite frequently. What we do struggle with at times, I guess, is getting a wider engagement within the different technical teams. But actually, I think recently that started to improve a bit. We're starting to employ and recruit quite a lot of graduates. And in my opinion, it's the younger folk that tend to be, I think, a bit more innovatively. We do hold sessions where we sort of teach people about what we're looking for in innovation. Um, and I think you can give people training on how to be innovative. Certainly, there's some really good techniques out there for, for helping people think innovatively. There's also that natural ability to innovate as well, I think. And, and that's what we're looking to nurture. And those people that can innovate, I think we're trying to help them form teams as well around their sort of specific interests so that they can actually bring other people along on that ride. But you need some sort of, I think, natural inquisitive sort of thoughts and stuff to become an innovator my own experience shows that actually you know there's an innate curiosity that people need in order to innovate and if that's in place then you can help by giving people the skills the techniques you know the knowledge of, of innovation process and how to make the most of that also sometimes experience can really help with innovation and experience can really get in the way of innovation as well you know you look at a company like uber for instance they're not a company of taxi drivers they're sort of software development tech company that have gone into a very different industry so sometimes having that fresh perspective can help and tim i know you're all about disruptive innovation as well so can you define disruptive innovation and if you can, I know some things are really, you know, quite rightly top secret and very confidential. But can you share any disruptive innovations that you might have worked on or be, been involved with? I suppose disruptive innovation is really about challenging that status quo, seeing where something that could come from another industry outside of the sector or just a different perspective of looking at something to deliver a solution 
that you wouldn't have thought of as a natural solution. That's where we kind of see some of our disruptive innovations coming along. As you say, quite a lot of our things are not able to kind of be discussed more openly, but things that we do have that we've promoted and are currently working on. Um, we have a, a, a suite of technologies, really, that we're calling EASED, and that stands for Electrically Assisted Surface Decontamination. Really interesting background to the story is we were working with a collaborator, an SME, who had a technology that we were became aware of and they weren't promoting or utilising. So we did a bit of work on investigating whether you could do, it's a type of electropolishing called electropickling. It's used quite a lot in the food industries for cleaning stainless steel tubing and pipe work and so forth, especially in the food industry. And what it does is it basically applies an electrical current that takes away three millimetres or a few you know, tens of microns maybe of the surface of metal and it just strips away that surface layer. And we looked at this from a decommissioning, decontamination point of view. And that we believe that a lot of the radiation in an item, a metallic item, is held close to or within the surface boundary. So it's not deeply ingrained within the entire structure. It's held within that, like I say, the first 50 microns of the metal surface. So by removing that, we can take away that metal layer and take away the radiation contamination with it, thereby allowing the rest of the item, could be a pipe, a vessel, a tank or whatever it would be, to essentially be classed as just bare metal without being contaminated at all and that can go off and disposed of separately and then we can treat the radioactive element of it. The great thing with EAST is that we've come up with a number of different end effectors. So we've got something that can strip off the internal surface of a pipe. We're looking at an embodiment that it can then do a large tank so a tank maybe sort of eight metres in diameter by 10 metres high. We're looking at how we can do concentrated, what we call hot spots removal. So there may be an entire large surface, but there's only one area that's contaminated. So can we just treat that one area rather than treating the whole thing as one? And we're coming up with different end effectors and technologies that we can use to apply our eased embodiments. So that's a really interesting project. And like I say, that's going to make a real difference to decommissioning tasks and the costs of decommissioning. Because as an industry, we've been tasked with bringing down the lifetime costs of decommissioning. And it's technologies like this that are going to make the difference and enable those costs to be brought down. Another technology that we're currently in the process of getting ready to go um, into active facilities is something called the NIV separator. So this came about where one of our colleagues had viewed some chemists in the lab and they were doing a particular type of separation for strontium. And he noticed that actually it involved quite a lot of harsh chemicals, took quite a long time. It involved one of our qualified chemists being stood in the fume hood there for a number of hours. And his main thoughts were, well, why can't we automate this? So he set about collaborating with a microfluidics company. Again, non-nuclear SME, maybe even micro SME. They were more in the biotech sector, but they understood microfluidics and technology development. So we worked with them, developed our NIV separator device that can do it automatically and allow you to take your sample, put it in the device and then run that separation for you. So this is improving safety. It's allowing operators to not have to spend hours in front of a fume hood doing the actual work. And it's also about automating things as well. So we can set that running and allow people time to then go off and do other activities whilst also doing the separation in a fully safe environment. Paul, if you want to talk about some of the other technologies that we have. So those ones that Tim mentioned there are kind of things we've 
probably put a bit more development in than some of our other technologies. So as well as sort of developing stuff from scratch, we also look at sort of taking commercial off-the-shelf technologies. As NNL, I think part of our expertise is actually looking to how you can take existing technologies and actually prepare them for use in a nuclear environment. So we've looked at things, for example, like a laser scanner, which are used in many industries. It's effectively a laser scanner that basically builds up a a 3D image of a scenario. Now, usually they're quite big, and some of the places we need to put them are quite small. So we've worked with a company and actually producing a laser scanner and putting a particular sort of case on the outside of it to enable it to go through a a six-inch port. And and that's effectively taking an off-the-shelf bit of kit making some modifications to it to actually neutralise it. And then that's actually let us deploy it into our plants without damaging the equipment. And then in a similar vein, we took some existing technology, so a a gamma probe, a silicon carbide gamma probe, and we actually worked with the supplier to actually develop a similar system that could actually be deployed in higher dose rate areas. So some of the measurements that we have to take on site are in sort of quite highly radioactive environments. And the existing probes weren't compatible with that. They couldn't actually measure at the, the levels that we needed. So we actually worked with them and developed the system further so of a specific use case, which actually enabled us to take measurements in places where we weren't able to, to measure before. So as we said, it's innovation isn't about necessarily developing and inventing new things. It's just about modifying existing stuff sometimes that can actually be used in new ways to deliver value, basically. Sounds super creative and really fascinating world to be in. How long does it take you and what sort of success rate do you have? Because I imagine everything doesn't always work and some of these things might take a while, particularly given the safety considerations. Things vary a lot. I mean, I think the the things like the gamma probe and the laser scanner, as I say, they were sort of commercially available off the shelf in, in other sectors and for other uses so they were a bit quicker i think to to get deployed whereas some of the other stuff like the niv separator that tim mentioned and the the eased there's quite a lot more development work involved in those but typically we would trial these technologies that we develop in our inactive facilities and a lot of that takes place at workington in cumbria obviously that takes a bit of time we need to make sure we've got it right inactively first before we start deploying anything on plant Once you then start deploying technologies on an active plant, then there's a lot of regulations you have to adhere to. Obviously, there's quite a lot of safety considerations. Things have to be CE marked, for example. We have to prove that if, for example, a probe that we stuck into a plant to take a measurement, if something happened to it, then we could actually sort of recover it as well. There's things what we call PMP, so plant modification um, procedures they need to be satisfied so if any of the technologies that we're developing actually mean a substantial change to the plant for, for whatever reason then that all has to go through sort of engineering substantiation to make sure it's safe and it's not going to impact on any other processes so it's a lot more onerous i guess getting technology into a nuclear plant than it would be on a non-nuclear plant and that's rightly so you know safety is at the, the forefront of everything we do so it can take a long time. I mean, Tim, I don't know how long EASD has been going on, but certainly a couple of years, I think, hasn't it? Maybe four or five years ago, just with those initial trials about looking at this technology to see whether it had application. And then from there, there's been a long conversation with the customer 
and also for them to kind of understand the technology and us to present the technology in the right way once we'd obviously developed a level of technical assurance that it could meet the requirements and demands and that it did have utility and could be applied. So those experiments and times taken a while to get going, but now we're in a, a position, very fortunate because of our close working relationship with the customer, where they've come to us with a challenge and said, this is the problem, this is what it's like, this is uh, the encumbrances, these are the restrictions, can you apply or make something to apply the technology in this environment? And then we've worked with the customer and innovated and developed a uh, new deployment tool that we can do it. And we're hoping to get that tested actively in the next nine to 12 months. That's a key point, Tim, as well, that I think probably we only really want to work on stuff if we know there's someone who's actually going to benefit from it, if there's going to be some value generated. We like to fail fast, I guess, if there's an idea that doesn't look like it's going to work or we we think it's a good idea but there's no customer then we will stop funding it and we'll focus on stuff that people actually need. There's so much I love about what you both are saying there and so many insights that anyone who's innovating anywhere in any sector can take away. I think the first thing is that you are actively looking outside your own sector and seeing what can be brought in you know if has this been done somewhere else is there something that we can adapt and bring through. I also love the fact that you're innovating in a highly regulated, really safety critical environment. And I think so many industries don't do that. They use regulation or safety as an excuse not to innovate. And they're just additional constraints and constraints can actually help us innovate in places. You're taking safety super seriously, of course, and the regulation seriously and you're working within that, which shows that it absolutely can be done. The other thing I think is great is how you are testing fast, failing fast, and doing what I call purposeful innovation, which is that it's there for a reason. It's not just playing around with stuff for the sake of playing around with stuff. You are solving real challenges and real problems. And I know that you've innovated using Tiger Teams as well, um, the, the NASA concept. You're thinking of using some sprints. So can you explain a little bit about how you go about bringing other people, bringing externals into your innovation environment as well? So we found by running Tiger Teams and opening up our innovation process to our customers as well as our technical colleagues. So there's been a lot of enthusiasm to get involved with Tiger Teams as a new and sort of novel, innovative way of approaching a challenge. Um, we also use the Tiger Teams as a uh, career development opportunity. We bring in some early careers, some mid-careers, and we bring in the experts as and when, so they'll drop in and drop out of the Tiger Team. So it flexes as the idea develops. And we also bring customers in as well. So they can give their opinions or look at specific decision points to say, yeah, that's going in the right way or that won't work or it would actually need to be, you know, two inches smaller or it need to be, you know, longer or radiation hardened. So we find by bringing in these blended teams, there's a lot of enthusiasm to get involved. Sometimes we struggle with getting people to commit to six weeks on a Tiger team, but we try and flex their attendance at the Tiger team so they can fit in around their work and their customer priorities and customer work as well. So by having that flex, and there's quite a lot of enthusiasm to get involved, um, we find they work really well. One thing we have done because of the last 12 months is if we are to run Tiger teams going forwards, they'd have to be virtual. 
there's no way we could get everyone in a room together for a concentrated period of time. And with that in mind, we feel that Tiger Teams over six weeks via MS Teams isn't going to be viable, which is why we started looking at the innovation sprints and see if we can do five days to go from ideation through to prototype. And the prototype will be, you know, Goldilocks prototypes. You know, it won't be overdeveloped and over-engineered and equally it won't be unrealistic. And we're hoping to launch those this financial year. And we think those will get um, equally as much enthusiasm as our Tiger teams have done previously. Paul's run our Tiger teams in the past from our innovation spaces at Workington. As Tim says, I've been involved in sort of heading up the Tiger team programme. The focus has been really, we do Tiger teams looking at technical problems, so technology-based challenges. And we've also used Tiger teams, shorter Tiger teams, for looking at some of our internal processes as well. The first Tiger team we did was to look at one of the challenges that Sellafield has when it comes to decommissioning. So on the Sellafield site, there's lots of vessels and tanks that eventually will need cleaning up before they can be dismantled. And traditionally, the way of getting into some of these vessels is via the pipework that connects to the actual vessel. The problem with that is, is that the pipeworks are often quite small diameter. So anything you need to Get in any technology you want to deploy needs to be fed through those small pipes. So we sort of took a different approach and we thought, well, rather than actually putting technology in via the pipework, why don't we actually go straight into the vessel from externally? So our guys got together, there was about seven people on the team. So we pulled the team together and we sort of stripped the idea back to basics, you know, how do you cut into a vessel, not just necessarily a, a nuclear vessel, but what about a, a tin can or what about a nuclear submarine or a submarine if you need to get into a submarine? How can you actually get into that and how can you then reseal it? Because often with these vessels, once we've been in and cleaned them out, we need to reseal them as well. So we sort of did some ideation and we, we looked at like tin openers, for example. <laughs> we started with something as basic as that. And then what we actually decided on and settled on in the end was actually using high-pressure water jetting as a cutting method. So by going in through the vessel, we could cut a six-inch hole in top of the vessel using high-pressure water. And then we could retrieve the coupon, so basically the cut-out hole. We would then be able to deploy technology to actually help us decommission the tank and clean it out and because we're going in a much bigger hole we can basically deploy much more sophisticated much more effective decontamination equipment which would mean we could do a, a better decontamination job on it and also we could do it quicker and then we designed a what we call a smart plug so that once we've decontaminated the vessel we could then drop a plug and seal it back up so that the vessel was effectively airtight again so that Tiger team was, as Tim said, that ran for six weeks. By the end of it, we'd actually mocked up a smart plug. We'd been out to suppliers that could offer the whole cutting service. So we'd got, a, I think it was a 12 millimetre stainless steel plate that we could demonstrate that we could cut for using this high pressure water jetting. And then we deployed a smart plug to reseal the vessel. And that was made using our 3D printers that we've got at Workington. And that work has now actually led on to some actual active trials, which were actually, well, they were due to happen just at the start of COVID, but I think they're hopefully going to get started again next month, I think, or the month after. So we kind of took a challenge that Sellafield had, developed a system, looked at various ideas, down-selected ideas, pulled together some initial plans, 
produced a 3D model, went out to suppliers to look at how we could do the whole cutting and basically pulled the whole thing together in six weeks. And it now looks like that method might be deployed on the Sellafield site. That's fantastic. And what I love about that as well is it started with a tin opener. And it sounds silly, doesn't it? You know, can you do this with a tin opener? But why not? It's a great place to start. And what it does is it gets people's thinking going. It gets the ideas flowing as well. And the Tiger team sound you know, really great and really productive. And you're putting your innovation into action the whole time. So, Tim, do you have any favourite or go-to innovation tools and techniques or activities? What are your favourites and why? Well, I think actually what we found in innovation, and particularly because we're a commercial organisation, is we give people time. So everyone has to have a booking code, so people need to book their time to projects. We allow colleagues to access a booking code to do innovation work. So what I've found to be really useful is there is a particular challenge or people want to look at a technology. By giving people time to get together, now it will be virtually, of course, to get together and kick around some ideas and just discuss technologies, deployments, encumbrances, restrictions, and bring in a diverse cross-departmental team together. Some people on the deployment, some people on the technology, other people from maybe effluent management or treatment, and allow people time to think about a problem, think about solutions, and kick around ideas. That's been really helpful. People have found that of, of massive benefit and have probably got further than they would have if they'd done it individually. So by bringing people together and giving them time to think in a facilitated workshop, allowing people to kind of explore ideas, bounce ideas off each other, that's been really fruitful and that's been really useful. As for techniques, I particularly like the Lotus Blossom technique where you have a central technology, idea, challenge, whatever it would be, and then explore ways and factors that contribute to that that would then need further unpacking. So you start to break up the problem into its constituent parts and analyse those individually and see what would need to be true for this idea or problem to be solved. Those are probably my main ones. And um, we also do quite a lot of technology comparisons. So there can be a number of ways of addressing a particular challenge. But if we then start to layer on, it needs to do this, it needs to be that. And we start to bring in what these kind of restrictions are into particular deployments. So people can focus on a specific type of challenge. And then you can start to compare and contrast different ways of approaching it, where there'll be pros and cons, benefits and risks. Uh, and suitability of technologies. And again, it's about giving people the time to kind of look and assess these ideas. And then following on from that, they could lead to more practical projects, which we do in our labs, or we'd look for collaborators. And then you start to kind of develop maybe a prototype, and then those prototype works can then go on to looking at how you would then get a deployable device out of it. Absolutely brilliant. I think as well, what is critical is actually getting the challenge right, getting the challenge well-defined, getting clear understanding about that and asking the right question or questions. So how do you go about that, Paul? So I think the, and we've mentioned it previously, the, the key thing really is to understand, as you said, what the challenges are. And really for that, we have a good relationship with our customers. I think that's the key thing, really. You know, it's all very well coming up with an idea and thinking you've got a customer, but until you've actually tested that with them, then you, you don't know that. And I think at NNL, we're quite fortunate. We've got some really great account directors that understand who our customers are and what they need. And that actually helps us ensure that we're sort of, you know, we're innovating in the right challenge areas. 
as part of the Tiger teams and some of our other innovation sessions, we actually invite some of them along, the customers along to the innovation events as well. So one of the other Tiger teams we ran was probably about, I think about three out of the eight people on the Tiger team were actually from the customer company. And that was great because they could actually help give us spear as we were innovating. And that was great because it meant that what we came up with would actually be required and was fit for purpose for the customer. Yeah, it's a great motivator knowing that there is a real problem to be solved, a real opportunity to do something for real and for the customer as well. And I know, Tim, you put quite a lot of effort, don't you, into actually specifying that challenge, getting it down on paper and getting the challenge owners to input and be part of the the communication, really, before and after the Tiger teams or the sprints. We do find that that work up front generally leads to a far better output so it's worth investing the time early on up front before anyone starts working on it to really define what the challenge is what those restrictions are what the incumbencies are what performance is required what does success look like at the end of this and what is if there is a baseline technology or a baseline process what that is at present and where we may see deficiencies or areas for improvement and by investing that time up front we found the outputs are far better. It's all about getting that value proposition right, isn't it? I think that's the key thing. You know, what is what you're innovating going to deliver? Who's going to benefit? How are they going to benefit? And, you know, why do they even care? Again, that value proposition right up front is key. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And it's clearly working really, really well for you. You know, a great track record, very, very exciting stuff. And it's fascinating that you are being so disruptive in a positive way and learning so much from other sectors. I just support Paul with the, yeah, the value proposition is really sort of critical to our innovation efforts. Is this solving a customer's pain? Is it providing a customer's gain? And to what level is it going to provide either a pain reliever or a gain enhancer? enough for that customer to flip to this solution as opposed to continuing what they're doing now. Sometimes it can be a bit of a challenge if you're trying to get new innovations into the industry because you're essentially asking someone to change control of risk into their programme. So you've really got to get that value proposition and sell the benefits of doing that and make that absolutely clear and upfront so that people can appreciate and understand easily what the innovation is and why it's an improvement as to what the status quo is or what they're doing presently. And yeah, like Paul says, getting the value proposition right and ensuring that you have a strong enough case to want to get support from customers and colleagues as well. Other people in the business, you want their support and all stakeholders to kind of clearly understand an articulated value proposition, really useful in getting innovations into the sector. We've got a great comms team that can actually, you know, we we work with them quite closely actually to let both our internal customers, so other people in NNL and the innovators and people that, you know, we hope will come up with ideas, let them know what we're doing as a team, but then also put that out to our customers as well. So externals can see how NNL are actually bringing innovation in and where we can actually, you know, add some value. So comms is key as well. It is. And I think what you're doing so successfully is it's not just great quality, you know, superb quality, world class science, technology, innovative thinking, creativity, learning from other sectors. 
there's the whole communication, influencing, customer focus, really clear purpose for doing your innovation. There's a whole combination of things that you're bringing together super successfully to drive forward that disruptive innovation for the benefit of the nuclear sector, which is working brilliantly. And if anyone is listening and thinking, oh, you know, I've got some ideas that might benefit the nuclear sector, or I'd like to learn more about Tim and Paul and what NNL are doing, what's the best way for them to start to innovate with you or learn more? How can they find out and contact you? So one way they can get in touch with us, we're on LinkedIn, or they can use NNL's website by the contact us function on there. Just put in some details, put it for the attention of the innovation team, and we'll get that through to us. Fantastic. I'll make sure all of those are in the show notes as well. So if you're listening and you really want to find out more, just have a look down underneath the show itself and those links will be there for you to connect. Well, there's been loads and loads of content there. I've learned so much. It's always an absolute pleasure working with you both. So is there a final message on innovation? Any thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Tim, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'd say uh, the nuclear industry is is ripe for innovation. There's never been a more pressing need and demand to bring in new innovative technologies and ways of working. We are very open to looking at external parties' technologies, see if we can nuclearise it, as well as looking for collaborators and partners. We're open to collaboration, we're open to innovation, and we're happy to work with people outside of our organisation to deliver that. Excellent. Thank you. And what about you, Paul? I think really just to emphasise what Tim said, really, um, NNL is open to work with with anyone. Man in a garden shed, small SMEs, universities, large organisations. If there's a technology or an idea that we think can benefit the nuclear sector, then we'd love to hear from you. Brilliant. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show today. I've loved talking to you. I always do. And I've learned a lot as well. I always learn something every time we speak together. And I think you've given us all lots of food for thought around innovation. So Dr. Tim Whitworth, Paul Knight from NNL, thank you so much. And thank you also to everyone for listening. I'll be back. See you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to the Idea Time Show, brought to you by Dr. Joe North. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and access more completely free resources at bigbangpartnership.co.uk forward slash resources. We'll see you next time.